Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these soirees into the deep wilds and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Stephen Fry is professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield, and president of Cormac McCarthy Society. He is the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from the University of South Carolina Press and editor of the Cambridge Companion to Cormac McCarthy in Cambridge University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. His book, Unguessed Kinships, The Literary Naturalism of Cormac McCarthy, is currently under consideration at Cambridge University Press, and he has written numerous journal articles on Cormac McCarthy and other authors from the American Romantic tradition. Steve, welcome. Here is our inaugural guest on the Reading McCarthy podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate you having me. Now, we're starting this podcast because there are more than a few readers and scholars and writers and so on who consider McCarthy one of the greatest writers of the era. What can you tell us about him? Well, first of all, I agree with that, obviously. Uh, and I think that there's a lot to be said for McCarthy, not only as an American writer and all writers uh, that are embedded in the region become concerned, as do the critics that deal with them. They become concerned about being characterized as, as regional writers. Uh, McCarthy is especially oriented toward the South and the West. But I think it's important uh, to understand that, particularly at the level of theme, but also at every other aesthetic level that we might talk about, he's really someone that fits into the modern canon of world literature. Uh, and I think that that's fairly safe to say. What I, what I would say about him just biographically is, uh, you know, he was born in Rhode Island, actually, in 1933. But as a young, a young boy, moved with his family to Knoxville, Tennessee. His father was, in fact, a, a lawyer for the Tennessee Valley Authority. And so he grew up in Knoxville and in and around the environs of the Great Smoky Mountains and the Appalachians region and really became attuned to those cultures. And it was a, a very, uh, I would say, diverse culture in the sense that, of course, you did have a, a growing city. You had the Tennessee Valley Authority there modernizing the area. But it was an area that invited modernization. Uh, the mountain cultures that we associate with early America were still very much resonating uh, in the dialects and the practices and the works and the, and the, the lives of, of the people that lived and worked there. So his first few novels were actually set you know, in, in the South and very much embodied uh, the region around which he, he lived. And then uh, in midlife, he, he moved to the West and began situating his novels in, in the American West. And his first was, was uh, what many consider his masterpiece, Blood Meridian. And he's been working there more or less uh, in that setting ever since, with the exception of his last novel, The Road, which is a return to the South, but we don't see that Southernness like we do in some of the early novels. So his, his career is an interesting one in that, in that he was widely recognized. He won the MacArthur Genius Grant, I believe it was 1982. And uh, that was before, in fact, that he wrote Blood Meridian. That is a major accomplishment for any artist to win a Genius Grant. 
but he wasn't really widely recognized by uh, by a readership until 1992 with uh, his first novel in the Border Trilogy, and that is All the Pretty Horses. And for all with All the Pretty Horses, he won, in fact, the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And then later, uh, after he wrote two more, the, the, the concluding two novels of that trilogy, he wrote The Road, uh, and that won the Pulitzer Prize. And along with that, he wrote a play called The Sunset Limited, which is, uh, in my view, maybe not in, in everyone's view, but in, in my view, a kind of companion piece to, uh, to The Road. So, yes, a very significant writer, I think, in our time, and increasingly that's being recognized by, uh, by readers and scholars, I think, worldwide. Yeah, very good point. And I think... When you talk about Sunset Limited, it does remind us that he, although he is not a frequent writer of the short story, such as earlier writers like Ernest Hemingway and William Faulkner are, or even novellas like Melville, he is, on the other hand, pretty comfortable writing plays and in dramatic formats. We see many screenplays, most of them unproduced. You could argue one of his worst works he ever wrote is a produced screenplay here in the latter part of his career, uh, The Counselor. Uh, additionally, uh, and it is interesting, I agree with you that Sunset Limited does go kind of hand in glove with the road. Now, can you tell us how you came to discover McCarthy? Because I don't believe uh, contemporary American lit was initially your your ground in in American literature, right? You had a little bit different or area that you focused on. That's right. I do bring a different framework of understanding, I think, than than many people. I suppose that that study McCarthy, and, uh, it, and that makes it very interesting to gather with those people and, and, and to talk because our vantage points really complement one another. But I was originally trained as an early Americanist. That is, uh, the authors that I I've contended with are, are authors like Hawthorne, Melville, and Poe. Authors we associate with what what is what is broadly called the American Romance tradition. That's not love story. That's that's philosophically oriented novel. And so I come to it from that vantage point. And, you know, I, I suppose the question would be, how did I get there, right? That's the question that you're asking. And one of the things that's, that, that's striking is that McCarthy, one of McCarthy's favorite novels, maybe his favorite novel, is in fact Herman Melville's movie Dick. And um, McCarthy himself is, is a writer who is a very, has, a, has a very special relationship to the tradition of the American novel. And when I say special relationship, I'll, I'll say that there, a, a famous poet in the early 20th century, one of our most famous poets, T.S. Eliot, wrote an essay called Tradition and the Individual Talent. And what he said in that essay was, wow, um, great writers, what he wanted to call great new innovators, are writers that have what he called a historical sense. And what he meant by that is that they absorbed the tradition that preceded them by reading and creatively re-embodying that tradition. Our normal thought is, you know, if you're overly influenced, then you're imitated, but not from T.S. Eliot's point of view. His idea was that you creatively reabsorb the tradition, and that's the only way that you can innovate. I like to think of Cormac McCarthy as that writer with historical sense. And so that's in part how I came to him was through Melville and through the romance tradition, which he embodies. At the same time that I was studying the literature 
of the American Romantics, that is the early 19th century, I was also very interested. I'm from the West, and uh, though I went to graduate school in the East, I, I came back to the West. And so I had a sort of parallel interest in the literature of the West. And when, when All the Pretty Horses came out, I, of, of course, was one of the many readers that launched on uh, to McCarthy at that point. And many of, of my colleagues, and I, I imagine, Scott, some of the folks that you'll talk to in later broadcasts, will we'll come to him earlier, in fact, than I did. But I'm amongst that group. Uh, and I bring to it that orientation of the early Americanist, the Melvillian, which I still am, and also that interest in the West as it dovetails with, uh, with that earlier tradition. Yeah, it, you don't have to read far in McCarthy to see the influences of Melville, uh, occasionally picking up metaphors and particular lines and using them again in a different way. So you're absolutely right. Uh, for those who have yet to dig into him, how would you describe his style in general? I think anyone who's read Melville has a pretty solid idea what Melville's up to. So how is McCarthy, in addition, you know, with Melville and your consideration of the two of them, how, are, how is he like other writers? How is he distinctive from other writers? Who are these uh, talents? And that was a great job describing that pretty complicated T.S. Eliot essay, by the way, because I've read that thing for years and I've never been able to boil it down as cogently as you just did. So thank you for that. But who, who else would you just, compare him to? How would you describe his writing? And who would you compare him to? And how has he grown, perhaps, from that? Well, I'd, I'd compare him in a very, very, I suppose, particular way to a number of authors. And that is, of course, uh, the most obvious that comparison that's been made, not, by, not just by me, but by many, has been to William Faulkner, and also to Ernest Hemingway. But not so much that his writing is similar stylistically to either one of those authors but that both of those authors, and, uh, and even Melville, even back to the 19th century with Melville, what's distinctive about all of those authors is that they have a special preoccupation with style. You know, many of the authors that we, we admire read like other authors, right? We, we can't necessarily recognize a sentence or a paragraph from even some of our favorite authors, but you can recognize a Hemingway paragraph and you can recognize a Faulkner paragraph, and you can recognize a McCarthy paragraph. So the comparison I would make, especially with respect to Faulkner, is that that overt preoccupation with style. And others have noted um, uh, that he has a very, McCarthy has a real interest in re-embodying an archaic style, a, a Jacobian style, a Shakespearean style, a biblical style. So all those things, I think, are resonating in his works. But, you know, one of the things that, that I think has been overstated, not so much by, by academic critics, but by some of the early reviewers, is the comparison to Faulkner. And there's been a tendency to talk about similarity in style. And part of that comes from uh, the idea that it's, it's, he's arguably Faulkner's heir apparent in the publishing world. In other words, he was taken on uh, and first published by Albert Erskine, which was William Faulkner's former right. editor, and he's also and McCarthy's also a Southern writer. So there's been this tendency among early reviewers to sort of compare them. But again, I think the comparison is that they're both stylistically preoccupied. If you'll notice in Faulkner, there's a lot more subordination in the right. sentences, and they they tend to trip on and on typically. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's level after level after level to the sentences. That's less true of McCarthy. And uh, it, McCarthy, there's, there's, it's you know, polysyndeton, you know, the, the direct linking together of, 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 of parallel phrases is more typical of his style. And also he loves archaisms. He loves, you know, I had, uh, some people who, who have questioned McCarthy will say, well, he's messing around with the thesaurus. <laughs> and I, my response to that is, yeah, and to good effect, right? right? So that his, the whole idea of taking a word that's really not in use now, it's not something that Faulkner typically did or Hemingway typically did, but to take a work, and the one I always note is the word haruspices, <laughs> and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, it's at the end of his novel, um, Child of God, and a group of medical students are looking over a dead body, and they're dissecting it. But he refers to them as like haruspices of old. And the idea there is if you just read over that and you don't look at it, you miss something. But if you sort of click on it like a hypertext, what's that? What does that term mean? Well, they are a trust right. in soothsayers who divine secrets from the entrails of the dead. And that changes your whole reading of what these people are doing. Right. So my sense is that stylistically he uses these ar archaisms and to change the reading experience and demands of us or invites us to look at what words mean. Uh, and in addition to that, he creates a sense of mystery and of age to his writing. With respect to, to someone like Hemingway, I think he's a lot, actually a lot more similar, particularly in later works to Ernest Hemingway than he is to William Faulkner, just in terms of of the minimalist style that he cultivates in later works, particularly The Road. There's actually in The Road a couple of, I think, direct allusions, homages to him. Uh, so, so, yeah. There's a dense layering of lyrical language that I do think points this at Faulkner. But if you read deeply in Hemingway, it points you to Hemingway more than people think it does. Mm -hmm. There are probably some lines there with the archaic language to Joyce mm -hmm. as well. And, and certainly in future podcasts, we'll have some, some folks coming on to, to maybe talk about those connections. Can, uh, what other writers would you uh, think should be part of that uh, tradition that his individual talent is absorbing and moving on from or progressing from? Well, uh, you know, it, he's, he's notable for actually saying in, in one of his few interviews that, uh, that he's not particularly oriented toward people like Henry James or Marcel Proust. Right. And that's people that are very oriented toward uh, descriptive detail and sort of normative psychology. The writer that I think is often under-considered, but I think at the core, and McCarthy mentions him himself, is Dostoevsky. Uh, and Dostoevsky is particularly interested in polyvalence, in taking multiple perspectives and put them in, putting them into the voice of characters so that, you, that he's not resolving a theme uh, in some sort of singular monolithic way, but he's giving those themes various play by having characters argue with one another. And one of the things that's typical of McCarthy throughout his work, uh, especially from Blood Meridian forward, is you have characters talking to one another, expressing sometimes very different perspectives in tension with one another around deep philosophical questions. And that really is, in fact, Dostoevsky's Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think that's particularly notable in in the Sunset Limited. 
I think that is very much, I think it reads in many ways and acts in many ways like a, a Beckett play. But in, in fact, the debate between the atheist and the believer uh, is really in, in, in many ways a rearticulation and a creative advancement of the very debate that takes place in the Brothers Karamazov between Ivan and Alyosha. Ah. So Dostoevsky, I think, would be one that I would note most, most particularly in the tradition of the novel. Uh, stylistically, you know, there's just loads of Shakespeare all throughout. So for readers looking to dig into McCarthy, or for those of limited exposure to his writing, how would you describe the arc of his career? I think you've touched on that a little bit. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Yeah, the arc of his career. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a number of things. Number one, of course, there's the, the surface level transition from the South to the West. But that arc has still involved an intense preoccupation with place and the way place actually uh, works to constitute identity. Uh, it, it's pretty difficult to divorce any of his, of his characters uh, from the environment within which they live. And I think that he was interested, I imagine, in, uh, in moving to a different but nevertheless very American place, and that is the West, to explore that, that process of what we might call identity formation or character development or just the human experience broadly construed. In terms of, of the arc of his career uh, at, at, a, at a sort of thematic level, there's a lot of consistency. And that is, you know, he once said in one of his interviews that, that it's not literature, literature if it's not dealing with life and death. Uh, and I think that remains true from beginning um, to end. But some early critics thought of him as a kind of nihilist. That is a person who just felt like life had no purpose or meaning or value at all. And a whole generation of us have looked, especially as his career has developed over time, and seen various ways in which, in a couple of levels, he's constituting uh, or thinking about the way life, in fact, does have value and, and meaning. And that value, on the one hand, is constituted in, in the way that characters develop friendships and interact and sustain one another in the Border Trilogy. Uh, characters right. like Billy Parm and, and John Grady Cole and John Grady Cole and, and Lacey Rollins, this sense of brotherhood that, that gives life a purpose and a meaning. And also, as oriented as he is toward the sciences and as interested he is in the natural world, there's always a kind of religious resonance in, in his work, a sense that there might be something beyond our immediate physical experience that that is imbuing uh, the universe 
with value and with meaning. And he, uh, he is, in that sense, very much God-haunted, not by no means orthodox uh, in any kind of religious way, but very much oriented towards spiritual considerations as they relate to lived experience. So that's the arc. And I, I would say, finally, that his early novels are very dark, right. uh, very difficult in content. And if you notice, that sense of brotherhood and unity develop more and more in the later novels. I like to think that there's a very subtle softening of perspective as he matured and got older and older. And that continues in the road. I think that there, there's a, a, that, that sense of, of human connection that, that develops and becomes more prevalent uh, thematically. In his and, yeah. and you see the development of his style changing. And of course, what problematizes this notion is that he works on novels simultaneously for years and years and years. And so when we think of the first three predating Sutri, we know that he worked on Sutri for most of the time he's working on the first three novels. So right. it's a little complex there, but there is a somewhat Faulknerian, you know, dense lyricism to the first three novels that changed into something sure. unique and amazing in Sutri, uh, where I think you're probably re- roping in more Joyce and taking his own chances. He takes it a step further in, in Blood Meridian so that we're, we have those first three books as kind of one style, the middle two as the next style. Then we've got the Border Trilogy and moving into still new territory. Uh, and then finally, No Country for Old Men in the Road among his, his prose works, his uh, novels, I should say, anyway. So yeah. we see a you know similar arc there uh, in maybe the lyrical yet less complex prose of the last two novels reflects that softening. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm not sure, but yeah. can you, uh, I guess we've made it obvious that you're the inaugural guest here on the podcast because you're the president of Cormac McCarthy society, as well as being someone who's just fun to talk to about this stuff. What can you tell us about the, the growth and, and status of studies in Cormac McCarthy? Well, it's been significant, especially in the last say 15 years. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the Cormac McCarthy Society actually was uh, initiated in 1993 at a conference. Um, I think that's basically, I mean, I wasn't around then. So what I can say is, is that it really kind of comes into being at a conference at Bellarmine College in 1993. And I should credit Diane Luce, who I, I hope you talk to, uh, as well as Rick Wallach. Uh, and Edwin T. Arnold for really being the people that that brought McCarthy studies to the fore with a number of of early collections of essays and also really getting the, the, the society going. Now that does parallel his sort of rise to uh, a broader acceptance with uh, the 1992 publication of All the Pretty Horses. So there's been a steady growth really since then uh, as time has gone on. Um, but I, I really do have to credit the adaptation of, of No Country for Old Men into uh, the Academy Award-winning film by the Coen brothers as really sort of bringing him into a broader sort of cultural consciousness. Right. Uh, and that, um, that, you know, there's the, our academic world is not totally separated 
from uh, what we might call the broader and thoughtful reading public. There's a little bit of a relationship there. Now, what's notable, though, is that as that critical, it used to be, uh, it probably in the early, in the late 80s and early 90s, that it would, it's hard, was hard to find a place that was going to publish an article that is a prominent journal on McCarthy. Uh, many people didn't, didn't really even know who he was. Um, now it is the case that he is being, and I, you know, as the president of the society and someone who's published on him, I'm asked to, to scrutinize some of these articles for publication. And they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from, uh, from, from just journals at the top level. Uh, and so there's a real desire on the part of, of folks to, uh, or, or of publishers to see them. Well, to catch now, up. <laughs> pardon? To catch up. To catch up, that's right. Now, the interest is there's tremendous interest in the road, tremendous interest in the border trilogy. But I will say that probably the work that, that, um, that requires the most sort of unpacking uh, might be Blood Meridian. Mm. Uh, and uh, that is his first Western novel. And it's that novel, and I, I should say that Harold Bloom, major literary critic at Yale University, if, if folks don't, aren't aware of that, actually sort of talked about that novel being one of the best novels written in the last 25 years. And that had a lot to do with people starting to pay attention to Cormac McCarthy. Well, and of course, there was Oprah and... And that's true too. And that's true. Sadly too. enough, Oprah probably you know sells more seats than Harold Bloom. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's very true. That's very true. As we as we start winding down, Steve, let me ask you this: What's your favorite book Corey McCarthy has written, and why? Well, I'm going to defy your question a little bit there because it's a hard one, um, but and I'm going to give you two. Uh, my favorite book as just a reader like everyone else might be The Road for a very personal reason. I read The Road when my own son was 10 years old. So mm -hmm. I could identify that, uh, that experience very, very, uh, very, very deeply when early in the novel, the father says he knew only that the child was his warrant. If he is not the word of God, God never spoke. Uh, that spoke to me. Uh, and so it, it, that's the novel that makes me weep. Uh, as a scholar, as a person that likes to sort of unpack all of the many thematic, structural, formal, aesthetic dimensions, uh, it would have to be uh, Blood Meridian. I think those are both great choices. And so since you're the first guy, we'll let you cheat and come down with two of them. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on this first inaugural podcast. Again, our guest today has been Stephen Fry, Chair of the English Department at California State University of Bakersfield, President of Cormac McCarthy Society. Also, thanks to Thomas Fry, a relation, that same son, now grown up, who has wrote, performed, and produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions, which is too bad. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.